Hey, deserving listeners, I am here to talk with you today about geriatric, geriatric clients is the technical term, or elderly people who come to us as mental health people. I have a, an email from patron Tyler. I also have an email from listener Samantha, who emailed all the way back in 2015, asking us to talk about this. But patron Tyler wrote, hello, Dr. Honda and crew. I was wondering if you would please consider making an episode on geriatric mental health and the challenges and commonalities within the special within that specific client population. It is a population often ignored in mental health. I am currently a music therapy and psychotherapy intern at a hospital's complex continuing care and palliative care wards complex continuing care and palliative care wards and something about the way the professionals, the medical professionals, address the mental health of the patients worries me greatly. During rounds, meetings, and other discussions of regarding the patients, they rarely touch on mental health. And if they do, it is most often met with a simple referral to a psychiatrist and the prescription of an antidepressant. There seems to be an over-pathologizing of the mental health of the patients in the hospital. Considering the fact that these people are stuck in hospital rooms for years with awful debilitating diseases like Huntington's disease, multiple sclerosis, or late-stage terminal cancer, it would make complete sense for them to be exhibiting symptoms of depression. Antidepressants are given out like candy to anyone who presents as depressed, not by psychiatrists, but by nurses and doctors, and they don't properly assess the patients. They only take a few seconds to assess them. Anyway, before I go on rambling too much, I would like to conclude by saying that I love the podcast and the whole crew. Everyone brings something unique to the table, and I especially look forward to hearing the latest development in Berto's interesting career path. End of email. I thought since I don't specialize in this popular – so this is me talking, not Patron Tyler. I, I thought that since I don't specialize in this population – I would ask my friend and colleague to come on the show to talk about it because it is her specialty. Welcome back to the podcast, Mitzi. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, back. you you came to at least one of our pod parties, podcast parties at my old condo downtown. Correct, one or two. So you've been on the podcast before, kind of, but never as a full on guest like this. Correct, never in the hot seat. Yeah. So you were a student in the couple and family therapy program at Antioch University. And early on, before you even started working clinically, you came to me and said, I really want to work with elderly patients. And I want my internship to absolutely be with, with geriatric people. You're, you're laughing uh, because my advice to you at the time was, great, I'm, I'm fully supportive of your of your wish for that however there might be a problem finding a site one and two getting the kind of hours you need in order to graduate and you and i went back and forth for a long time about that and i always you know said if you want to take the risk then go for it i'm just worried about you as long as you're willing to accept that risk then then great you did accept the risk. You did work at an agency that specialized in geriatric clients population, correct? In a roundabout manner. Okay. But yeah. you did end up working with a lot of elderly patients. I did yeah. in, in the long run. Okay. I did. 
or at least more than you would get at another internship site. Correct. And you did get your hours and you did graduate. I have not graduated. I have six weeks. Oh, you have six weeks. So close. But you're going to get all your hours soon. Correct. Okay. So premature congratulations to you on that one. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I don't know what you want to talk about in terms of like where do you want to say where you're interning at? Uh, Yes. Uh, So I ended up working and I was lucky enough to find a geriatric mental health specialist who's also an LLMFT um, and a supervisor. Okay. I kind of lucked out. So you found a site that had an LMFT who is has the license that you're being educated to get Mm -hmm. and who also specializes in geriatric patients. Correct. Which is, you're saying, a lucky thing because that sort of professional is not very common in our field. Correct. Yeah. So great. So you found that person at a site that actually attracts geriatric patients. Correct. So it's actually, it's part of Valley Cities, which is a community mental health um, agency that's it was smaller, and now it's actually growing quite a bit. Before we move forward, educate me. Are there PC terms like geriatric, older, elderly? Well, what's the terminology that is preferred? Or do, are they all okay? They're all okay unless you call someone an old person or you're old. I you're mean, an old person. It, you don't really call an individual geriatric. Yeah. The, you're a geriatric person. <laughs> look yeah. at you. Yeah. Staying active. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, so it's... Older adults, if you're speaking about someone, you don't really speak to an older adult and say, wow, you're an older adult. Yeah. I guess you wouldn't ever say that to any client, really. I mean, you wouldn't say, look at you with your 20, your millennial (laughs) self. (laughs) You're such a millennial. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it can be received as a put down and, or a pigeonholing of some sort, but let's, let's get into patron Tyler's email here. Okay. He says that. Uh, older adults are a population often ignored in mental health. Do you think that's true? Yes. Yeah. I also work um, before this career. I work and at, currently I work for an assisted living facility uh, in a memory care unit. It's all in one. And so, in that instance, is mental health overlooked? Yes. My guess, because there's not a lot of research, which is a different part of this, is that there's comorbid issues. It kind of gets overlooked, the mental health part, because they're working on so many physical aspects of a human that's aging that it's just attributed to aging. Comorbid meaning that they coincide. They are um, so you could have depression along comorbid with dementia or Alzheimer's. Because of research, you can't really pull them apart. We can't look at which one is which. Mm -hmm. And so I think the physical aspects get priority. And they're the easiest things to look at and to treat. So what do you do when you work with people like that? So at Valley Cities, as part of the older adult services team, it's a lot of supportive care. You know, there's not going to be a lot of interventions. It depends on the person, of course, and what they're presenting with. If you can help with the transitions of any kind of aging, so losing mental abilities, losing physical abilities, losing people in your life, depression, anxiety, and all the other caveats there we treat them you treat them as above but you have to take all of their things into account i mean some of these people are taking 25 to 50 pills a day so it's eliminating one thing at a time you know the crazy idea that utis present as hallucinations and dementia and so we always have to look at multiple things and i think that's a part of the reason why there's not people jumping to be in this position is that it's it's complicated so complicated yeah 
Because if they're on 50 medications, <gasps> yeah. like literally 50 medications? Literally 50 pills a day. Wow. Yeah, vitamin. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what it is even. At a certain point, there's just... I ask my clients, how many pills do you take a day? And the average is between 25 and 50. Right, because say someone's on 50 medications and they are experiencing some mild depression and some blood pressure problems, it is hard to know if one of the medications is to blame. And if it is, then what are the consequences of taking, you know, say the antidepressant is causing the blood pressure problem. You take them off the antidepressant, which cause, which, you know, may or may not alleviate the blood pressure problem, but then they become significantly depressed and suicidal, which is a safety issue there too. They stop eating or something. And I would just imagine that it's hard to know what to change in terms of their their medical regimen. But you're the therapist and the family therapist. Correct. So tell us about what it's like to be helping these people as a marriage and family therapist. So it's everything that I wanted it to be, yeah. right? Working a lot with families that are trying to help their loved ones as they're getting dementia and trying to be as autonomous as possible. You know, you can only do what you can do. I mean, a lot of the families are super supportive of of that situation. And the ones I'm seeing are the ones when they come in with their older adult. I also see I also go to a a facility for my my internship. And so there I just see individuals um, that live in a kind of a state institutional facility. And that's a little bit different, right? Because you'd wish that the family members were there. And a lot of our conversations about are about how their family members are absent in that. So then you're just working with people about their grief and loss about the situation they're in. Work how? Like what, what would a session look like? So again, really, it's really basic supportive therapy because of the situation. So we're working in people's uh, rooms where other people are walking in and out of. It's not ideal for family therapy. Um. But just helping people kind of process the situation they're in. So it could be, you know, touching on existentialism if they have the mental capacity to kind of work through what they want to accomplish, you know, what they want to say in the last quarter of their life. It depends on their age, too, right? I mean, I have clients that are have terminal illness at 60 or early onset Alzheimer's, and then I have clients that are 100. So that's why this conversation is so difficult to have even, right. you know, how to answer these questions, because it's a range. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't talk, we wouldn't be talking about if I was a child therapist, I would have teenagers and 20-year-olds. But these are so different. A 60-year-old that has a terminal illness, so ALS, uh, I work with Parkinson's, early onset Alzheimer's, and then further, you know, then I have 90-year-olds that are completely in, in great health, and we work on purpose. But they're not the same human. They were raised in different times. I have to treat them differently. They have different values. But I have to learn about their process. This is a whole different ball game. It's really individualized. Okay. Yeah, regarding purpose, mm -hmm. what kinds of conversations do you have about that? So purpose is my just the love of my life, like for research. I just, I think retirement age and after, um, if we get into that 
eventually is at the suicide rate for 65 and above. The population is 12% of our population is 65 and above, but it's 18% of suicide because they're, they commit, they complete suicide better than teenagers, right? It's better, not better, but they do it. At a higher rate of actually completing the suicide. Correct. Because why? Lack of purpose? Right. So a lot of the research is looking at this individualistic society here in America. What's the question that most, and it's mostly men that are in that statistic. Women too, but mostly men. Regarding suicide after 65? Correct. Interesting. Um, And it's... The, the research is just showing that what do, what do men say? You know, what do you do for a living? And right. you really identify with your job. And so after you retire, what, do you, what are you? Right. What do you do anymore? And so purpose is a big deal. The ones that find purpose and they have a little bit more of a community seem to be faring better. Communities like what kind of communities? So whether it's volunteering or hobbies or church or friends or having responsibility in your family. So... Taking care of grandkids or... And you'd think that that would be the protective factor, right? This is the the research and the guesses, is that the protective factor for women is that they've been helping. They, yeah. Grandparents, grandmothers help raise the young ones, where the grandparent, the grandfathers aren't necessarily... Called upon or feel confident because of their socialization. Right. Regarding that sort of thing. Interesting. Yeah. So purpose in life, uh, mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. My my parents, my mom listens to this podcast sometimes. Mm-hmm. She, actually, she'll probably c- click on this one. I don't know if she listens to every single one. Hi, mom. She uh, and my dad, who have been married for fifty four years now, they have found they're both retired, and they f- they find a lot of community at YMCA, especially my mom, who has started teaching aerobics classes at the age of seventy something. Wow. Well, I don't think she probably wants me telling people. <laughs> it, you know, they made a lot of friends at YMCA and mm-hmm. it gets them active and they're bo- and they're both really healthy and they eat healthy and and then on Facebook and online they're also really involved with everybody um and the family and all their grandkids and stuff and so and you think that makes a difference? I think so. I mean, I I I know that you know, things aren't always easy, uh, health-wise and and maybe purpose-wise. But I know that from what they say, it's it's really uh, something that they enjoy a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember my grandma, my Japanese grandma, who just died last year at 101. She in her 70s, which would have been 30 years ago, suffered from depression mm-hmm. and. Would, and as a Japanese woman who was born in the night, who was born in 1912 or something, or what would it be, 1915? 1915, she, you know, wasn't brought up in a culture that really pushed psychotherapy services. So she, it wasn't the first thing that appeared that 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 occurred to her. But her physician, her primary care physician. Uh, assessed her for various different things, including depression, and then suggested that she see a counselor. And because it was, you know, a directive from her doctor, she went and really enjoyed it. She she really liked talking to this guy, and the the and she said she said it helped with her depression. 
And I can tell you, as her grandson, I didn't know what to do to help her with that. I, I was a mental health person when I knew when I found out, and just just didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do because if it's so awkward in families, you know, to know what to say as a family member. Do you ask them about it? You, you know, is it prying? Mm. Especially when you have a a proud Japanese woman, quiet Japanese woman. Um, but the the funny story about my grandma that I think I've talked about before on the podcast is she she my family. There's a lot of hugging going on. There's a lot of hugging and <laughs> kissing and stuff. And she wanted at the end of the session she want she would talk for all this time and she'd want to hug the therapist guy <laughs> and he said to her he said uh well i'm sorry but i can't i don't hug my my patients uh which you know which is fine if that's what he wanted to do um because recently there was <laughs> a case in Spokane because that's where she lived in which a therapist had crossed the boundary and been sued or something with their patient. And so he said, I'm really sorry, but I don't, I don't hug my, my patients. And my, my grandma's telling the story and she's like, she's like, Oh, so after he told me about the improprieties of this other therapist, I, I understood why he couldn't hug me. Um, which is kind of a funny analogy because she's this super elderly. I mean, I could say that she, she would have been in her, you know, eighties at the time, this small, frail Japanese woman. And that probably this, you know, quite young counselor, I'm pretty sure no one's going to think that there's going to be some kind of impropriety if she hugs him, you know? Uh, so, uh, so yeah. Um, you were making a face that indicated that, come on, dude, just hug her. I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal, right? Again, yeah, the same thing. I, would, yeah. I hug my clients, yeah. the ones that want to. I actually find the funniest one, uh, it's not even funny, it's, it's real, but they want to know very much about me and they want to know my religion. Interesting. So that's my boundary. Yeah. I had to learn real quick. Yeah, I can't imagine how that would be a good thing to disclose. There's so much political fallout from that, right? And politics. Yeah. They're real interested in politics. You know, they all read the paper every day still, yeah. most of them. And so right. you have to learn how to dance around that in the most appropriate therapeutic way. Yeah. Hugging your clients is something that I find most therapists are paranoid about, particularly novice therapists, even though it's never told to them that they're not supposed to. Any ethics professor will say that hugging your clients is a complicated thing. It's not like you can say always hug your clients or all, never hug your clients. It's, it's, there's considerations, but in general, it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, and there's absolutely nothing unethical. There's no ethical code that says thou shall not hug your clients, not even close. And there's no law that says you can't hug your clients. So, you know, uh, and most hugs between therapists and clients are the kind of hugs that you would give your, you know, brother-in-law or something you know it's not long uh caressing you know full frontal uh touching hugs these are these are the kind of hugs that you know you it's a brief a brief kind of grab and right. maybe even there's some distance between you as you just sort of put your arms around each other but mm -hmm. you know and and it's 
not sexual. It couldn't ever be interpreted as sexual. Right. It, it provides warmth. And for some people, like my grandma, it's the customary way mm -hmm. that you say goodbye upon talking intimately for an hour. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, other things that I remember about my grandma re regarding her depression was, and it, I don't know if she suffered from purpose loss. I'm guessing she probably did because she, she, she had a lot of purpose from her job. But another thing I remember her telling me in her 90s was that almost everyone had passed away that she knew. Mm -hmm. her, her grandparents, her parents, her brother, her aunts and uncles, her cousins, mm -hmm. uh, even, even one of her kids. Yeah. My uncle had passed away. Her, all of her friends, her minister at church, most of the people that she was in choir, you know, everyone she knew what had had died it's, and especially if you make it to your 90s right it's like the chance that other people have reached that point along with you is pretty slim i, I remember she was looking at this picture is this beautiful picture taken in spokane of her and nine of her friends and she's naming all the names she's telling me all the people and she's like actually mm. i'm the only one alive out of all these people wow and, you know, that's when it just struck me. I just thought, I mean, I, I can imagine, I mean, I know what it's like to look at a picture and say, oh, my grandma is in that picture. She passed away. But the, but mm -hmm. almost everyone else in the picture is still with us. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine looking at a picture and saying, I'm the only one out of all those people that is still on this planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the compounding grief and, and the enormous loss of everyone that you grew up with and knew, I just can't imagine it would just be crushing to people. It is. And compound that with physical and mental losses and simple things like your home. Right. You know, even if you move in with your family and it's a good situation. I mean, some people lived in their home for 60 years. Right. They built everything up and now you're left with a box of things. I and mean, that loss is, it's deep. Yeah. You know, and now you're looking at those last pictures and you're the only one left. Right. L the loss of your house, like you're saying, mm -hmm. the loss of your neighborhood, loss of your job, the loss of the ability to drive a car, mm -hmm. the loss of your purpose in life, you know, the loss of your of your physical abilities. You know, you can no longer go hiking the way you used to or mm -hmm. you can no longer go to the bathroom in the same way that you used to or something. You can't sleep throughout the entire night. Uh, yeah. Um, Big complaint. Really? Huge. Yeah? How, what do they say? Probably number one. Really? That's a big one. Like, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. Yeah. They're just so frustrated with that. Yeah, it's such a misfortunate or just tragic uh, thing that occurs to elderly people It is the inability to sleep at night. It's, it's, it's empirically shown, right, that mm -hmm. as you age... It it's harder to stay asleep, and once you wake up, it's harder to fall back asleep, and the the restfulness that you get out of sleep is is not as as robust as it was when you're younger. And as as a 46 year old person, I I can tell you that I'm already experiencing that. When I was up until I was 35, 40, when I went to probably 35 ish, when I went to bed. I fell asleep pretty quickly and I didn't wake up till my alarm went off. 
and my alarm, would, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd fall asleep and then my alarm would go off and I'd wake up and that would be it. Like I would have, I wouldn't have woken up. I wouldn't have nothing. Now there is no, I, I recently that happened to me. I fell asleep, woke up the next day when my alarm went off and didn't wake up. And I was, I was like, <gasps> it's a miracle, you know? <laughs> and whereas the typical night I'm getting up like four times a night, you know what I mean? I'm, uh, or mm-hmm. especially in the morning, right? As the last couple hours of the morning, it's like I'll wake up every five minutes or something. It seems not all the time, but um, and yeah, if if, the, if trends continue, by the time I'm eighty, God willing, I will. Yeah, I'll I'll mm-hmm. I'll fall asleep, and then ten minutes later, I'll be up. You know, and so. I just can. Um, so, are they constantly walking around sleep deprived? Is this why my grandma fell asleep while I was watching Star Wars in the theater in 1977? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, what what else can you tell us about? You know, telling clinicians out there, people who aren't clinicians, that will help them in terms of your experience. So, I'm going to link back even just what we we were discussing. You know, different medical things, different grief and loss things. I think. This has been my my current theory is that it's the the difference between sympathy and empathy. So we can all empathize with being a kid. So all these clinicians that are around me that are child focused clinicians, everyone knows what it's like, you know, how to have no power in a situation. Right. But we don't know what it's like to be older. Yeah. We don't know what it's like to have all that grief, all that loss. You were just kind of sharing like how surreal it is to look at that photo and know all your friends have passed on and you're still here and so when i watch others when i watch people uh interact with older adults which i do almost daily i that's the difference when older adults respond to you it's because you're being empathetic if the people around me are sympathetic i laugh because i mean some of them will tear you apart you know when you're just saying oh poor you Oh, it must suck to be old. I mean, they don't say that, but they they mean it in something called elder speak, right? Which is like kind of baby talk to older people. But empathy is like, I'm with you. Like, this sucks. And they respond to me. And I watch others. The ones that they respond to are being empathetic. Because we are all, we're all temporary here, right? And if you can identify that in yourself and know that you're going to be there if you're lucky. I mean, that's what brought me here. That's what brought me to older adults is that they're safe. You know, children pull I the heartstrings like working with kids like it pulls on me too much. Mm. You know, I joke that I don't like children, but I I own one, but I I actually love children. I just it's too much. But older adults, I feel even if they're having a hard time, I can be there for them. Mm. And high five, you know, high five them. If you get to be 90 or even 70, like rock on, you did it. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, when I was early in my career, due to my almost daily death angst and existential angst, I thought that professionally I I could get two birds with one stone. I could earn my paycheck while at the same time trying to figure out the meaning of life by working with older adults. I actually looked into hospice and other places like that, palliative care places where I could be the staff therapist. It, it never end up, ended up panning out. Do you get some of that satisfaction out of it? Like, I find that people 
who, no matter what age they are, really, people who are facing their mortality, even if they're not, you know, terminal, but just people who are aware that our time here is limited, have certain wisdoms that I benefit from. You know, it'll remind me of the 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 really important things in life. You know, if I'm worrying about, oh, I got a five chore or five errands I got to do today, poor me, and then they're like, yeah, I'm probably going to die in the next three months and I'm just sort of wrapping up my mm-hmm. affairs and trying to, you know, figure out what I want to leave behind. You know, it just sort of puts things in perspective, right? Do you ever benefit from that one? Well, I think it depends, again, on the individual because sometimes I can benefit and then sometimes when they're fighting the death bit, you know, and that... I don't benefit from it. It's just angsty. It's angsty for them. It's angsty for everyone. But when then, they're fighting, when they're fighting, it, when they are denial, denial, and they're not happy about it. Obviously, yeah. they're they're struggling greatly mm-hmm. at the realization that their time here is really limited. Right, and then you think about regret, right? And there's not enough hours in a day, so I try to mitigate my own regret with that. And I do learn something every day that you don't want to let things pass, you want to get shit done. Yeah. Ultimately. If there's someone that you need to apologize to or reconnect yeah. with, uh, do it now because mm-hmm. you might not have a chance to do it. Either yeah. you could pass away, obviously, or they could pass away. Yeah. Have you ever had a patient die in the time that you've been at the internship? No, not as a therapist. Not as a therapist. I, I work in a nursing home, so I... Experience that all the time? I experience or? that all the time. Okay. Is it different... In that way, as a therapist, would you would it would it be a different experience if one of your clients passed away as opposed to one of the people that you work with in the because in the other capacity, what what's your other capacity? So um, I actually I just work in dining. I chose that on purpose for the last three years, and I'm desperately writing a book about that experience, which is so um, you're you set up dining or yeah I serve food and clean do all that stuff okay and I did it. Um, against the better judgment of the general manager of that location because, you know, I'm educated and yeah. try to push me in a different direction. But I got to see families together. Oh. You know, and when you get to see families, I had just started this program. Um, one of our peers here was working. She started working with me. So both of us did it. And it, you get to, like, be a fly on the wall a little bit. And I got to watch families interact all the time. And priceless, priceless work. Uh, but it's also, like the lowest low job in anywhere. I don't know why it is so frowned upon because I think it's hilarious and fun, but not everyone would do that work. That's funny. But it is different because I work in their home. Yeah. You know, like as a therapist, there's boundaries. Uh, Wait, as a non-therapist, what's your title? As a dining person, you work in their home? Yeah. So that's their home. I come to work and they live there. Does that make sense? But it's like a, a nursing home. It's, it's a, a home. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a home. They. It's their. But house. it's not a residence. It's a. It is. Well, it's it's not like the house we're in right now. No, no, no. Not as freestanding home, like a single person home right. or whatever right, single right. family home. Right. No, yeah. but it is their home. Yeah, it's where they live. It's their house, and yeah. so I come into work, and I take away some of their boundaries. Right. I don't allow them to do things, which is fascinating to watch people, you know, psychologically deal with that but not as a therapist. So instead I get to watch them psychologically and then treat them like a friend. Right. It's been a blurry line, you know, to go between each one. Yeah. 
But then when they pass away, it's a different story. What do you mean? Because I get to treat them as a friend. I feel that I hurt see. a lot more. Right. I was wondering if that was true. I was like, I, you know, at first you think, well, obviously a client, you'd be more heartbroken. But, but then I was like, well, actually, with our clients, we have a professional distance with. But when you're working at the other capacity, you might actually become much more of a family member mm-hmm. at that point. So that's what you're saying. It is. And I, I mean, I'm close to my clients. I, I care about them if they passed away, but it's in a different, it's whole, it's a different world. Right. So it's, you know, what's blurring the line is that I would actually like to be a family therapist in those situations. So I've had to figure out where my boundaries are. Well, you can do a combination in the future. What are your plans after graduation, by the way? I would like to create that position in those communities. Yeah. It's 50-50. I'm working on pitching that. And if they take it or not. 50-50 that they'll accept? Yeah. In the company that you work at as a dining person? Correct. I I mean, I'm going to pitch them first. I I don't care where, which one it is. Yeah. Um, But it's necessary. The the adult children that I want to work with that are going through this grief and loss with their parents. One was in tears yesterday when she found out what I want to do. Why? Because she wishes they had that the whole time. Wow. She thinks it's a shame and it's actually unethical that they don't. So let me take some guesses here Mm -hmm. as to what you're talking about. So as it stands right now, we have these, we have these homes where older adults live and there are various different staff members you got your dining people, you got your managers, you got your, I don't know, your custodial staff, mm-hmm. maybe some nurses. Your nursing staff, care staff is what we call like care the staff. CNAs, okay. things like that. And activities. Activity people, but you don't have a therapist. No therapist. Okay. You don't have someone who works at the facility. If someone at your facility needs mental health services, they would go to a practitioner off-site or a off-site person might come and visit or something. Correct. But they're not like integrated into the community the way that you are as a dining person. Correct. And so you're pitching to this home to create a, a family therapy position so that all of your patients will be at this home mm-hmm. and – you'll be an intimate member of that community and therefore better able to treat those people and the families. Correct. And the staff. And the staff. Interesting. Mm -hmm. The staff too. Systemically. Right. And I think that's why family therapy is set up. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That staff, I mean, they'd be technically collateral contacts in all likelihood, but you obviously could help the staff with, the treatment plan that you have in mind <laughs> and more believable or more trusted, I suppose, than some outsider coming in and telling him what to do. Right. So just even psychoeducation for care staff about anxiety and depression. Yeah. Um, the way that people respond to especially early onset Alzheimer's, I think, is going to be the biggest piece Yeah. because the anxiety. So once you know you're getting dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah the anxiety is through the roof, right? right because yeah. they know they're losing something, but they don't know what. Right. And they just cause a lot of um, upheaval in a system. Yeah. And the way that you respond is either going to alleviate that or aggravate it. The way the community and the system responds. Correct. 
So yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm surprised that these homes. I'm I'm halfway surprised that they don't already have someone like this, but I'm also completely not surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, way to fund this would either be to increase the cost mm-hmm. of the service or to bill medically, medical insurance, Medicaid, and other insurances. So family therapy doesn't get Medicaid. But individual therapy does, and you can you can bill a lot of individual sessions and or say that collateral contacts happen to be in the room. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't call it family therapy. You call, cause it's, and it's not lying. It's mm-hmm. I'm treating this, you know, I'm treating this older adult and right. their adult children happen to be in the room. That's not, it's not lying to, to say I was doing right. individual therapy with family, uh, family members in the room. You, mm-hmm. There's even a code for that. Um, so, and again, that's legit. So you can do that. Mm-hmm. And that would, that would be an income stream for your business that would pay for your position right or something and retention and what do you mean retention retention of of residents and retention of staff oh interesting so so you'll get older adult people who will say i don't like this place and Mm -hmm. i'm out of here and family members right that are unhappy with all of it interesting Mm -hmm. and you would be there to be the the whole care it's quite a big job. I mean, you're going to be yeah. <laughs> therapizing literally every single human being that walks in the door, um, <laughs> which uh, which I've often thought is actually something that should be done more often in all sorts of uh, environments, like at the university. Right. I, I would love it if we had a therapist to go to and uh, mediate or just like understand and and maybe help us communicate better sometimes. Ironic. Right. And, and, but it's just such a, it's just such a non thought of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's great. You could even be a contracted person potentially, which that's, would be at no cost to the facility. That's the, the next. So the pitch is that I would be an employee there. A salary person. And I person. want, I would love them to take me up on that yeah. offer. But a contracted but, person, you could potentially make even more money and have more autonomy. Yeah. Um, depending of course. Yeah. My uncle just died recently. Uh, I went to his memorial last weekend. He died of early onset Alzheimer's. He almost like 10 years ago or something started showing signs and he was in his fifties. We, he just, I did, we just went down to LA last weekend for his memorial. My mom gave a moving eulogy, which was really moving. And the thing that I, heard from his story that I, that I thought, well, if this, cause it's genetic, you know, your risk goes up if it runs in your family. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, what if this happens to me in 10 years? Yeah. That my, uh, I would like to, th- I get anxious about a lot of things, but for some reason I don't get, I don't get, uh, anticipatory anxiety about this. There, there's something about it that doesn't, I wouldn't like it obviously to suffer from Alzheimer's, but what I decided to do was I'm going to have a full cognitive battery done by a psychologist, maybe a friend that I can get a baseline. And then every five years I'm going to do this to see, because I don't want to be unaware of it because the part of his story that I was like, Oh my God, I don't want that to be me was he was an architect and he was very successful and 
his his cognitive abilities started to get to the point where it was really affecting his job naturally but he didn't quit he or and he didn't have a i mean from what i could tell there was no plan in place around how to talk with him or how to evaluate or how to even have himself know because that's the thing about dementia you, you might not know <laughs> that you're forgetting things you know mm-hmm. and so and he got fired from his from his job which was wow. devastating to him emotionally which you know it would be natural but to me i just thought <gasps> I do not want that to happen to me. And the thing is, is you won't know until it's too late, right? Mm-hmm. It, or the there's a risk there. And so I want to have particularly memory tests done and executive functioning tests, you know, all the, all the different cognitive measures done so that if there is a dip, uh, you know, then I can sort of increase the testing like, okay, I, obviously I need to do this next year and see. And if there's, if there's a precipitous drop off, then I'll know that there's a chance that I'm heading into dementia and then I'm going to immediately tell everyone, look, here's the plan. Cause in five years I might not even know who you are. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, let's retire <laughs> because let's get that on. Let's get that out of the way. You know, there's no sense in me dragging everyone down with me. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, let's get me in the mindset of someone who needs people to remember for me. Let's not have me. Let's not have me depend on remembering things. <laughs> let's have a hook where I put my keys. Let's maybe not even have me drive anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, I uh, I just don't want to be in a position where you know I'm suddenly being fired from my job and I don't know why and I feel terrible about myself and I feel rejected and resentful that I was fired. You know, like I don't want that to happen. It sounds like you want to control your losses. I I want to prepare. I want to prepare. It, it'd be like if I had some condition that I was slowly going paralyzed or something in my legs. I, I would be like, okay, well, in a year, I'm not going to be able to walk anymore. So we got to start getting me on a wheelchair and we got to start, you know, figuring out how am I going to get to the store if I can't walk? It's the same sort of thing. It's let's prepare for the inevitable future that's that will happen. It's just a matter of when. We just don't know what the time span is going to be. Now, the You know, you're getting prepared for w- what might happen. You would do that for anything. So if your parents had heart disease, you would start running more, things like that. And you're, you're getting prepared. I don't know if you saw Still Alice uh-huh, yeah. that movie. And it sounds like that piece, right? And, you know, the, the floor, I, le- I love that piece where they said, she said the floor fell out from under her. And I've had honor to be around a few people now that had early onset, you know, super career-driven individuals and way too young. I mean, one, I actually miss... I thought she worked there, right? Yeah. You know, and she she wasn't. She was there yeah. and had a young child, you know, and it was like really crushing. But then you read some research, and I read a lot of Alzheimer's and dementia research, and the things that they're linking it to, you know, we're talking about the sports injuries, hitting your head a lot. I don't know if you were a boxer ever. I wasn't a boxer, but I, I've had a lot of head injuries in my lifetime. Yeah. I, I played football and I also, you know, just being a kid, you know, just fell off roofs and trees. and. Yeah. And I think you, I think you were my teacher when I came in with the stitches yeah. in my head. Yeah. yeah. And so I have a condition, I have a medical condition where sometimes I lose consciousness and I have done it a couple of times and it's called major concussions and I've had two and it's a major indicator for Alzheimer's. Meaning and, that it's a, 
it raises your risk of developing Alzheimer's. Yes, the most is actually that. And then I don't know if you've read the research, and I don't think you have because you're drinking Diet Coke. Is that <laughs> that's what it's linked to? Yeah, uh, just all the new stuff in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I am drinking Diet Coke. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there are things that are associated with Alzheimer's and protective factors. I mean, there's a lot of things coming out for protective factors. Reading out loud, you know, doing simple math, things like that. Right, but from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if the if your fate has Alzheimer's in the future, it's likely just a matter of time. You might be able to slow the course, kind of, mm-hmm. but it's something that that's just gonna get you. As of today, yeah. as of today, right. we don't have any way to stop it. Right, dementia, yes. So you know, knowing the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. Right, dementia meaning uh, is a broader term. You can have dementia and not have Alzheimer's. Right. So dementia is just memory decline in, in one way or another. Right. Like with my grandma, for instance, when she was in her 80s, she didn't show any signs of it. But when she was in her 90s, uh, as she went through the 90s, she showed more and more of uh, memory issues. And by the time she was 99 or something, mm-hmm. she didn't recognize some of my cousins. Yeah. Um, which is why I actually made for her this book. What You know, one of those photo books you order from like Kodak or mm-hmm. something. I made a book for her that had all the everyone's face and mm-hmm. as a child and as an adult <laughs> so she could remember who everyone was. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, you know, whenever I make, whenever I, I, you know, I'm always making these like photo books and like, you know, Facebook like things mm-hmm. and stuff. And like, no one cares. It's just, <laughs> uh, it's just for me. <laughs> Everyone's just like, you know, wow, that looks great, Kirk. And I spent like, you know, <laughs> like three months on it or something. And, but the one person on this planet that like a hundred billion percent appreciated these photo books was my grandma. I made her one for her birthday when she, I don't know, like 96, 97 or something. And I heard from my aunt and, and, and my aunt and uncle that she looked at it at least once a day, once a day, she'd pull out this book, this photo book, and she would flip through it. And so I made her two more of them. And, um, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time on those books and, and so it felt good to have at least someone on this planet, you know, appreciating it. And so I made one that had all the names in it so that she could remember. And, uh, because in her nineties, later nineties, she was not recog- We'd have reunions or birthday parties or something. And she would, I would, I would feel bad because I would walk up to her and she'd say, Oh, Kirk. And then she, my cousin would be right next to me and she'd be like, who are you? <laughs> and, and I'd be like, Oh no. <laughs> You know, uh, so anyway. It worked. Uh, well, kind of. You <laughs> it know, worked for you. Yeah, a little bit. And um, that's reminiscence therapy, right? So making memory books. Oh, okay. It's part of memory. Yeah. Oh, it's a thing. Reminiscence a thing. therapy. Okay. So I should have built my grandma is what you're saying. You should have built her. Yeah. Yeah. Up the wazoo. Yeah. But I also, I also want to make sure that we don't use ageism in a way that we like lump everyone together. Like at a certain age, you get dementia because one of my favorite humans right now in this world is over a hundred and she has her shit together more than I do. Yeah. I mean on it. Yeah. Uh And no memory loss that I can tell. Right. So uh, she seems to think like she has some decline and if she does, I don't know what she did earlier because it's amazing. Okay. So some people have the fortune of, 
yeah. of not and I don't know the stats, but it's it's probably a lot. It's probably a fair fair percentage. Um, but it's common through. for people past a certain age to start to experience some memory loss. Sure, yeah. and but why loss of purpose? You know, when they're yeah. a, like their brain is becoming um, or reduced plasticity, right? right? Right, right, and so that's the research. And again, I you know it's not my specialty, but the research mm-hmm. that I've seen is you know you you. You, you you use it or you lose it, right? Mm-hmm. So if you if you keep your brain going, then it helps to stave off the aging dementia uh, process. Anything else? Working with the families, you know, really getting involved with the older adults in the community. You know, trying to find a way to appreciate what's happening. How do they do that? How do people do that? So having conversations, reminiscence therapy is actually a lovely piece of it, asking about stories. So Alzheimer's, the memory goes backwards, right? So you lose the short-term memory first, your more recent memories. I like, and I don't know where this comes from, so pardon me, whoever I'm stealing this from, but the idea that in Alzheimer's, if you don't know what keys, where your keys are, you know, you just have memory loss. But if you don't know what keys do, like that's more of an indicator of having something more complicated going on Mm. so family members just being involved like the picture book i mean lovely right you want to try to get the stories and engage their mind and and be part of it because i'm i'm really interested in anticipatory regret you know the things that you can't look back when your your older adults and your family like start passing away you know we're really busy this society is just so busy and the baby boomers are more are looking like they're more apt to have therapy later in life. Um, right. They're you know, more and, culturally accustomed to it. Yeah. And they, a million retire a month or something. I don't know exactly the stat, but it's, it's a lot. And, you know, they're going to be able to be involved in that a little bit more. And they're taking care of their parents right now. Yeah. Asking them to just see what we can do to like engage people to have healthier lives in their older years instead of, you know, kind of not watching it. Right. So what I hear also in what you're saying is there's a huge market potentially of of untapped business yeah. in terms of a lot of baby boomers who are going to be potentially interested in counseling but might not know where to turn or might be turned away by certain kinds of clinicians who don't specialize in that or or they go to a counselor and the counselor doesn't seem to really get what it's like to be an older adult or something. Mm -hmm. And then they never go back. And so one of the things about not going to therapy for people that are middle-aged is time. It's, you don't have time to go to therapy. But if you're retired all the time, you got all, yeah, shit ton of time. (laughs) And so, so I'm just imagining myself, I'm retired at 85 and I'm like, I think I'll go to psychoanalysis and like go to therapy every day. And life review. And what? Life review. Yeah. You know, that's something to process with a therapist if you have the time and energy to do so. Yeah. You know, because all the bad shit comes up, all the good shit comes up, but you, it's a lot. Yeah. Right. Going through it all. Yeah. In terms of another reminiscent therapy thing inadvertently that I did was with my grandma when she was in her mid 90s. I did a documentary about her. It's actually on YouTube uh, that I posted. It's it's long. It's mainly for my family. It's not like supposed to be for the general public, but um, it's a couple hours. And I went into, you know, some good detail. I interviewed her 
over the span of, I don't know, a few months or something. And I scanned something like 50,000 of her photos, these old photos and stuff. Yeah. Individually (laughs) by hand and named (laughs) them all by hand and made this documentary, um, almost 20 years ago now. Uh, so wait, 10 years ago now. You know when things start every yeah, you know, I just figure everything's twenty years ago, but yep. but it's actually just ten years ago. Yeah. So it always makes me feel good. So, oh no, no, that was actually ten years ago. Um and uh yeah, and so that I guess gave her an opportunity to talk about all these things. That's when we were looking at that picture and she said everyone had passed away. Mm-hmm. But for me it was just eternally fascinating to hear because think about it, she was born in 1915. She grew up um, during World War One. She grew up during the Depression. Uh, she w- lived in Washington this whole time. She World War Two, war with Japan, mm-hmm. <laughs> post war, uh, the 50s, Elvis, the Beatles. You know, like she she lived through all those tiny little moments in history and all the presidents that she went through and all the just life experiences she went through herself. Mm-hmm. And there was just so many different stories she could tell. And she's kind of quiet in general. So doing the documentary really helped me to have an excuse to just interview her for hours and hours, yeah. you know, what a gift. Yeah. It's, 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 it's pretty great. So the, I wonder if there's like interventions regarding that, like, cause that's what I would want to do as, as a sort of, amateur documentarian if i had a older adult client i'd be like yep let's spend half an hour every time meeting where i put you on camera and and you just tell me about this and then you know i'll edit it together and post it and you can tell me you could share it with people you know because i think everyone has a fascinating life and the longer you've lived the more fascinating stories you have right i think so yeah do you hear a lot of fascinating stories from your clients oh my oh my i can't even I, you know, I literally can't say, and, (laughs) (laughs) and wow. I mean, I walk out some days and I'm just like, amazing. And yeah, I actually have thought about that. Like what kind of therapy, what kind of business would that look like? Just doing life reviews with people on film and getting it down and processing at the same time, just the gift of doing that. For them, for their loved ones, right? If they chose to share it, for because for me it was like, okay, my grandma's ninety one or ninety two or something, and I don't know how long she's going to be here. Mm-hmm. And once she's gone, all of this, the stories from her generation are gone, gone. gone. <laughs> you, you know, to to get the children involved involved in that, you know, kind of like the hook. Yeah. Honestly, one of the hardest moments I had after my mom passed away was I thought of something I wanted to ask her. Uh. And you can't, right? You know, and so, and my all my parents are both gone, uh, deceased, and my grandparents. So you know, you you think, oh crap! And I was pretty good. I was also the historian a little bit. You know, sat with my grandma and asked all the questions. I didn't record it. It was way too long ago. But then, so I just decided uh, in this conversation, like this is a great business. So I'm going to hire you with all the extra time you have at night with not sleeping. You can edit all these films. Oh, me? Yeah. You, well, you have all this extra time because you're getting older and you're not sleeping at night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly. Well, Mitzi, this has been interesting. Very. I hope that this addresses some of patron Tyler's questions. 
what Patron Tyler is basically talking. Patron Tyler's been on the podcast before, actually, mm-hmm. as a music therapist. But what I can say overall is, you know, do what you can to advocate. I know that you're not a post grad yet, if I'm if I'm remembering right. Do what you can to advocate. Um, talk. I mean, well, what advice? How how can someone who is in a hospital that seems to be dismissing older adults' mental health issues, what can he do, do you think? So I had this issue. I had this issue when I first started working in assisted living. And I think learn, just keep learning, keep asking questions, keep... Unfortunately, I've seen things that I wish I didn't see, you know, kind of the neglect of depression, which, you know, voluntary not eating and drinking, and we allow it. And then hospice comes in, they get some attention and they get better. That, and then ultimately they'll pass away because they're voluntary not eating and drinking, which is a choice, but it's through depression. So it's kind of this gray area. Um, I just, you know, I kept my head up and I kept doing what I could do in those situations. So, sorry, meaning that the individual is perhaps so depressed and demoralized that Mm -hmm. they're trying to commit suicide. They're trying to right. kill themselves through through malnutrition. Right. And they have so little control of anything else. That, Some, they're, that they're just like, I... Yeah. So you go into the room, you're trying to feed them, they're like, uh, no, I'm not going to... Mm-hmm. I'm not going to eat that. Like, nope. And they're trying to slowly mm-hmm. die. It's a... I mean, it is a, it is a real choice. Yeah. There's some... Uh, great videos that some social workers actually in Seattle have done about voluntary not eating and drinking. It's a legitimate way to make a choice. But when you're depressed, right. it's questionable, right? right? And so... Because the idea is, is that if we get that person active, get mm-hmm. them to talk about their issues, get them connected, mm-hmm. get them moving, that they won't be depressed and right. then they'll have a purpose in their life and they won't want to right. restrict and, and die. And so, yeah. should we just let them be downward spiral, so to speak, or should we try to address their uh, you know, well-being so that they have a reason to live? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, imagine doing that for a teenager. Yeah. Right? So, there's something wrong here. That's part of the ageism. Like, if a teenager was sitting there and saying, I'm not going to eat and drink, you wouldn't just be like, okay. Right. And But for older adults, it's this strange thing, and there's no legal thing that I could find. I mean, I went to everyone. But to me, it sounds like the problem is that the community isn't saying things like, well, it this this individual is choosing not to eat. Does it seem like they might be trying to slowly kill themselves? Right. It kind of appears that way because when I talk to them, they don't seem to have any anything to look forward to. And mm-hmm. they their husband recently died. And so it seems like they might be choosing to leave this world. Well, should we perhaps try to talk with her or mm-hmm. maybe um, just let her vent or uh, get her some, um, you know, get the community together to go into a room and like throw a party for her or something, you know, right. just to see if, see if, I mean, if she continues to choose not to eat, I suppose that's her choice. Mm-hmm. But, Shouldn't we be trying something right. to give her a reason to, to eat? Is that what you're saying? It is. So, there, But there's a gray area, right? So older adults, the difference is if they're not under 18, we're trying to keep 
their autonomy. So they kind of blame it on autonomy. Like, that's their choice. Yeah, which is fine, which I actually agree with. If it was, it, but if it wasn't based in depression. Well, right. Well, if, if someone, uh, right. Well, right. So if, if an adult, a 25 year old, I've had mm-hmm. clients like this who were restricting mm-hmm. and according to the law and ethics, I can have that person involuntarily hospitalized and forced, mm-hmm. you know, they can force a tube down her throat and actually make her eat. So if it's in, if, if it's a mental illness that is depression or anorexia that's causing a symptom that is motivating behavior that's going to very in a very acute way uh, manifest in them dying, then yeah, we will involuntarily um, take actions to to help them to stay alive, right. uh, to help to protect them from themselves. But with older adults, you're saying that they don't do that. And so there could be other things like they've signed DNR things and other legal documents. Right. And what is our job? Right. I mean, so there's this other area, which is, which is voluntary euthanasia. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the term. It's physician assisted suicide. Physician assisted suicide. And how, depending on your morals or your belief system, for some people, they're, they are, they're making a very rational choice that they have six months to live in all likelihood, and it's just going to be utter pain and horribleness, and they would rather just go now. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is suicide. They might even be a little depressed because— but They have to be approved for that. Yeah. So those two things aren't going hand in hand. Like this one doesn't have to be approved and they get to have control over it. Well, right, but it's approved by non-assessment or something, right? It's like they know what's happening. The physicians know what's happening, but they're not Physician assistant assisted suicide? Oh no, the other one. The, oh yeah. Uh, right. Right. So voluntary not eating, eating right. and drinking. They're just they're just saying, well, it's sort of like physician-assisted suicide light or something. Right? It is. so, But one has due diligence and one doesn't. What do you mean? So there's due diligence in physician-assisted suicide. Yeah. So they get a, they, it takes six weeks. You have to get approved by a doctor. They have to give you the pills. You have to go to some kind of assessment. And this is in Washington, the states. Have- Washington, Oregon, I think Texas, actually, or some weird thing like that I didn't expect. So, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's here, and I've been witness to that as well. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's different psychologically as well. It's a whole different... Meaning you watched someone pass away. No, um, I was just witness to that person. I wasn't in the room or anything. Family was there. But wow. it, psychologically, the week yeah. before, that's a God whole damn, different... God damn, I cannot imagine that. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's no easy answers to those kinds of situations, no. but I had to euthanize my my cat my cat mm-hmm. i mean i didn't but i the vet came to my house and and injected my cat and killed my cat at yeah. my request because my cat was not well in fact looking back i should have i should have done it 48 hours earlier Ugh. but i couldn't and so i just waited a long time i mean it, it's fine but that was rough on me, man, like to be, and I wasn't even in the room. I was like, I had to leave the room. <laughs> like I couldn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, and that's a cat, which, you know, 
I love my cats, mm-hmm. but if it was my mom or my dad and I had to, I don't know, man, that would just be, there's something different about, in my mind, about someone passing away who say they just slowly, naturally, in quotes, right. pass away, like they're, they're breathing or I don't know. So, Have you witnessed someone die that way? No, I, I've, I've only witnessed maybe two people pass away. It was a car wreck that happened mm-hmm. on the way back from Apple Cup from Wazoo. Mm-hmm. That was gruesome. Traumatic. How many have you seen? Like a whole bunch of people. Die? No, mine are personal. Oh, okay. Mine are personal. My mother died okay. from cancer, and we were there. And so that long, drawn out, really painful thing. Yeah. Has, and then my dad died suddenly. So. Um, it, it's different. It's different. So even, so I work in assisted living and so people die sometimes weekly, you know, yeah. um, I get a lot of bad news and some of them hit you differently. And I will say the physician assisted suicide one still, that was years ago, two or three years ago, hit me differently. And I, I'm, so. I'm, I'm an advocate, you know, I support anyone's decision to do so. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know why it it rocked me. Right. That in a different way, I still hold it differently. Yeah. Um, Meaning more painful. No, it's more disenfranchised. Almost. I. It's almost. I. It just sits in this weird place. So she disenfranchised. What do you mean by disenfranchised? You know, like I don't. I don't know if I grasp it. I don't know if it's actually if I can actually understand it in a weird way. Yeah. Like I, because she was different that day. Um, I don't want to give away too much information on who it was, but she was more alert or something or more. Healthy. Yes. So once she chose, she changed her personality with me. Right. And so I didn't know exactly what was going on. It's not really my job or my business. Medically. You didn't know medically. I, you know, she was in a lot of pain and everything else, but the week that she decided her, personality was like uh, on fire you know she was like hey what are you doing we're gonna do this and she was walking she wasn't walking i didn't know her walking she was in a wheelchair she was like running down the hallways and so and happy and like i'm gonna go with a story what do you want me to buy you know i'm like nothing but like what's happening and then we heard that this is the plan and she was going to do this and they had a huge party her and her family uh, lovely family, like cracking themselves up. They were like falling out of chairs that day, like laughing, cry- like so funny. And then didn't go through with it. Oh. And so, you know, then, I mean, that's a shock to the system because I had like prepared myself in a yeah. weird way. You know, she's not my family. It wasn't, I wasn't attached in that way, yeah. but it's still shocking. Yeah. And then did go through with it a couple days later or a week later or something. And it, we weren't told about that date. So uh, then I hear that next day. And it was like, the, it was just a very strange place to sit yeah. where her personality changed. And I wanted her to live because she was so lovely. Right. And I was like, was it just depression? But, you know, she must have been approved that she had a terminal illness. I just don't know. So, well, and it. Because it's it's a choice, right? It's mm-hmm. a it's a choice to leave this world that someone essentially does to themselves, as opposed to, well, that's nature. Mm-hmm. They their heart gave out, or you know, yeah, nature called and they answered. And whereas this is it, it's vol, it's a it's a human generated intention, <laughs> yeah. to, to do something. And and to me, yeah, I, I would imagine that that would feel different. 
So, I mean, if I was thinking about someone like my mom in the last very end stages, you know, the last 10 days, she was on hospice for, I think, 10 days um, total. She was doing fine. And then 10 days and she died. But it was like, it was painful the last 10 days. Choosing then. And if she had chosen to do that, I would be like, oh, that makes sense. This other individual, like they were running around. And so to me, it was like a healthy person, even though she probably wasn't, she wasn't healthy, but it was this, the mindset of being healthy and then, and then dying. Right. It, it's confusing. And yeah. I sit in it differently. And even though I know it, it seems like they, and this is a larger issue in terms of understanding that the staff around a patient mm-hmm. also suffer with the loss absolutely, and how it's just completely ignored. But it seems like a family therapist who was employed, <laughs> such as the one you're trying to, ding, ding. the position you're trying to create would notice, oh, Mitzi is, I think she's, you know, I wonder how she's doing. Mm-hmm. Mitzi, how are you doing with that, um, you know, physician assisted suicide? How are you feeling about it? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I'm feeling kind of conflicted about it. Well, mm-hmm. tell me more. Well, I'm not quite sh- It doesn't seem like it was needed because she seemed fine. Um, yeah, I could see how, you know, just let's process those feelings. And you know what? Let's get you a look at the medical file so that you can see it right. with permission from the family, which I'm sure they'd be fine with. Well, likely fine with. Yeah. Um, or at least the diagnosis or the or the physician can consult with you and say, mm-hmm. like, look, she, she had a, a terminal brain tumor that mm-hmm. had not, um, that was aggressive and we had already, you know, whatever. And so right. like she, she had, she had a maximum of two months mm-hmm. and although she looked fine, believe me, she, you right. know, da, da, da. um, you know, that might've helped on yeah. some level. It is. And, and people in those settings really sit with a lot of ambiguity and it might be one of the reasons why people aren't, you know, jumping at doing all that work right. and working in those situations. It's hard. Yeah. Well, I, I, it just makes me want to work in these environments more, and and I'm, I'm learning. Well, and I'm learning so much from you around this, and it's clear, I'm sure, to listeners, like my ignorance just about this whole topic, because it, it it is something that I never talk about with anybody. Wow, <laughs> which is a strange thing to think about, right? Considering yeah. that it's. 20% of the population or something that's above a certain age and family and friends. Right. And, right. You know, right. And I, I think it's a function of our society's uh, privilege of the young mm-hmm. of our society's denial of anything that sort of gets in our way of our wow. society's capitalistic nature. And older people are just a drain on the capitalistic system, so to speak in the, in the capitalistic um uh, ideology they have they suffer a lot and we tend to just want to look the other way from suffering um, we have a culture of making fun of of older people it, it drives me crazy i've become sensitive actually in the last i don't know five years or something to the way in which our cult there, there's it's similar to the way I've become extremely sensitive to Asians being depicted in the media. Mm. If I see another fucking Asian with an with a made up accent, right, it's going to drive me fucking up the wall. I know, I don't know, tens of thousands of Asians, and I'll say less than one percent have an accent. You yeah. know, all the Asians I know, yeah, 
their grandparents were born in 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 this in this country and or in Canada and don't have a fucking accent and so you know are there Asians who are in America who have an accent yes right but most don't and good point <laughs> And, you know, it'd be like if every time you saw a white person, they had a Russian accent. It's like, well, yeah, some white people in the United States have a Russian accent, but there are some who don't, you know? Um, And so in the same way, whenever there's an older person in a commercial or a TV show or something, it's like they're tokenized as, as like out of touch or they you know, their memory is gone or they're, I don't know, just one of the tropes of right. an older person. And, or the classic is, you know, old people in a, in a nursing home and they're, they're very, you know, rickety and they can't move and they're like, get off my lawn. And yeah. then you give them like ruby red bubble gum <laughs> and now they're all jumping around and, you know, having a so big happy. sort of, you know, hip hop party of some sort. Yeah. Um, you know, those kinds of tropes. And I've become sensitive to those where I'm just like, you know, older people are just you in the future. <laughs> they're yeah. just, they're human beings. They're not some kind of caricature of w- an old person mm-hmm. or the same way that Asian people are, <laughs> here (laughs) i'm asian you know what i mean and i don't have a fucking accent and neither did my grandma um and so uh it's like asians are not your token foreigner you know what i mean it's like whenever you need a foreigner you get an asian person and it's like there's foreigners come from all over the place anyway so i think we need a big marketing push on both of those yeah right because older asians without accents older asians without accents that With are full not personalities grumpy, right yeah. <laughs> um get on my lawn <laughs> i am speaking to you in perfect english Come here with cookies <laughs> yeah um because you know what i did i actually was looking for old stories like uh nursery rhymes or fairy tales with nice old women i was trying to find one and they're all like wicked yeah. stepmothers. Interesting. And or they're like magical, like the the fairy godmothers. Right. And so I was doing I was doing this research, like trying to find one like mythical nice old person, and I couldn't find any. And I was like, this or, is an old stereotype. <laughs> or an older person who is the central character. Yeah. You know, uh, how many movies are about are about older people? I'd like to recommend. Uh, I liked Quartet. Okay. And I liked Grandma. Okay. Grandma. With uh, Lily Tomlin. And then Derek, if anyone gets a chance to watch Derek on Netflix. Okay. Ricky Gervais. Okay. Working in a a home. As I'm talking to you, what I'm realizing is what I benefit from is just hearing about your the experiences that you've shared. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, Mitzi. Thanks for having me. Do you want to plug anything? Like maybe one day someone will hear this and they'll be like, how do I find her? My name is Mitzi Weiland. I have a, and I have some other things in the work under the term age loop. Age loop. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself out there because you all deserve it. Mm-hmm.